us in worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open it. We'll make this easy. Open it to the first page. It's, we're in Genesis today. And if you will mark Romans chapter 5, because we're going to dabble over there, if you will. Uh, we are in a new series, as I said earlier, for the next six weeks. We're going to begin to prepare for our Christmas series by looking through the book of Genesis. Now, as soon as I mention that we're going to spend time in the book of Genesis, there are numerous questions that come to mind for you, I'm imagining. Question number one, why? Question number two, what about the dinosaurs? Question number three, how did God get all those animals in the ark? And while all of those are good and helpful and widely debated and true, our goal is not to simply give you answers to those questions. My goal is for us to see the entire story of Scripture. And that story is one of Jesus being thread through every page and every story that we find. Now, while you may have questions about young earth and old earth and middle earth and Gandalf, I want us to look beyond the questions to the answer that is there. And that answer is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. It is good and true and helpful to study the Bible, but there is, this is not a magic cereal box within we do not have a magic decoder ring. If you can decode the Bible, your heart will typically trend towards you being the hero. And friends, if you are the hero of the Bible, that means that Jesus is not. So we're going to look into Scripture and we're going to see where it shows us, how it reveals to us, how it shows us, even from the very beginning, that God has shown Himself to us in the person of Jesus. If you have your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, we're going to begin at the very beginning. Because that's what it means, verse 1. I'm going to read through chapter 1 of the book of Genesis. You may be familiar. You may have it memorized. You may have made a children's art project based on this book. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at you, scholars. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning one day. And then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning and the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. And let the dry land appear and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God, saw, then God said, let there, be, let there earth produce vegetation. Seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants for those who were on whole 30 according to their kind. And the tree-bearing fruits with seed in it according to them saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the days from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons. And for days and years, side note, Lake Jackson friends, seasons are when the weather changes from one section of months to another. We don't really know what those are. Go, go north, like to Lake Charles, you'll see seasons. So they will, 
be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights. Verse 16. The greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. To rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the fourth day, the Lord... Then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth according across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures. And every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kinds. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning the fifth day. And then God said, let the, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their own kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the, on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created man in the image of God. He created them both male and female. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue. Subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be good for you. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning came, the sixth day. So God creates in six days and we know as followers of Jesus, as people who've been around churches, as those who would show up at a building like this during a pandemic, six days he created. On the seventh day he did what? God rested. So we see the story of Genesis that God walks through and says that they're boom, bird. He doesn't even say boom, there's just a bird. And the bird shows up. He interacts though with people differently. You see that God gets on his knees in Genesis chapter 2. God bends down and forms man that he breathes into the nostrils. And when he, when he breathes into the nostrils of man, he instructs man to rule. He instructs us to rule over every crawling thing, every winged thing, every tree, everything. God says you rule because I have made you stewards, caregivers, caretakers of this place. In my life, since I've moved to Lake Jackson, there's been a drastic uptake in snake interaction. Since then, uh, there was a day when Hope and I got a call from the boys that Charlie had trapped a, a, a baby snake in a sandwich bag. And there are unsubstantiated rumors that what he had in that sandwich bag was a baby copperhead. He's okay, thankfully. Uh, they, want to, they have asked for us that they could get waders and snake-grabbing sticks as gifts. I don't even know what a snake-grabbing stick is, but I know it's a thing that my children have asked for. The other day I was walking, shuffling, and sprinting at the college trail, and I came across this. I've got a picture of it. Now, you may not be able to see because of the lack of a zoom. Uh, that is a snake that is red 
on yellow. Now, according to the poem, red and yellow kill a fellow. Red on black, I still poop my pants. And... <laughs> and as I'm running, because I ran, there was no more walking or shuffling from that point. Like, who is that big man huffing and puffing and blowing the house down? And as I ran by people, I kept, hey, there's a coral snake up there. You need to avoid the coral snake. Over and over, I'm telling people to avoid the coral snake because snakes are bad. They're always bad. When we get to Jesus, you can be one of the people like, oh, some snakes are good snakes. You have those at your house. At my house, we'll have the not good snakes, which is all of them. We get to Genesis chapter 3, we, see, we meet our first snake. Now the serpent, see, told you, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. We see this very first snake. Let me give you an outline for what we're about to do today. 1 through 8, we see the reason for the fall. We see the next, the ramifications for the fall, found in 14, 16, and 17 through 19. And finally, we see the restoration from the fall in verse 15. One more time for those in the back. We see the reason for the fall in verses 1 through 8. We see the ramifications of the fall in 14, 16, and 17 through 19. And finally, we see the, the restoration from the fall in verse 15. So we're here and we see this snake. We're introduced to him. This is the first time we see this undoing when we read verse 1 of a false binary. Now we all know what a false binary is. If you're unfamiliar with that, it means that you have uh, counter-opposed ideas. You have good versus evil. You have uh, terrible things versus good things. And there is this historically false binary that you have forces that are at work throughout the history of the Bible. You have God who is good and you have Satan who is evil and they are working against one another. They are fighting with one another. There is one that is good, one that is evil. And the way that you guys see Texas and Texas A&M back when they used to let you guys play against one another. You, you see this idea. However, that's not what we find in Scripture. What we find here is a false binary because we do not have God who is good and Satan who is evil and they are co-equivalent beings who are at work once, once against one another. This is not yin versus yang. You actually see that very early on because you read through the text and you see this, that this serpent was a created being. Now, let's not miss this. Though he is cunning, which means it's this neutral term, but if it's applied to a snake, it's a negative term. He is cunning. He is created. So this Satan, this being, this serpent, who we will be introduced to as Satan in the book of Revelation, who will understand throughout the rest of the scripture, that's who this is. He is a created being made ultimately to make much of the person of God. Because all things, according to Colossians chapter 1, are for the purpose of making much of God. All things, according to Colossians, I'm no Greek scholar, Hebrew scholar either, but all always means all. Every single all time. Though he is cunning, he is created. And he has a question for the woman. And the question that he has for the woman is this. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He has taken what God said that is full of abundance and inverted it to make it a negative phrase. Because God did not say, hey, you cannot eat from these trees. God said, look at all of the things that I've given you 
Eat from one of them. Just don't do that. I'm going to give you a direction that is good for you, that is helpful to you, that is beneficial to you. But I want you not to eat from that tree. Did God really say? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of any fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Right here in this passage, we have this woman in her interaction with Satan. And we have an invitation for a human being, a person, like you and like me. We've got to be careful when we talk about Bible stories that we're not talking about characters. Adam is not a character. Adam is a person. Eve is not a character. Eve is a person. Noah is not a character. Noah is a person. The Bible is full of people. And people tell us the story of God. And we see in this passage that this is an invitation for a human being very much like you and me formed by the hands of God breathed life into to judge God. You know, he said this, but he said we can't eat this. We we, we just got to stay away from that tree. And in Satan's words, God is this cosmic Debbie Downer. He is a an Eeyore, if you will, in the eternal realm. The God who has offered abundance and plenty has said to you, you can't do something? Eve should have quoted the great philosopher Stanley Hudson and said, have you lost your mind? Because I'll help you find it. (laughs) Instead, she enters into what D.A. Carson calls the de-godding of God, where we undo who God is for the sake of us. When I put myself in the place to decide what is right and what is wrong, rather than going upon what God has said to me about what is right and what is wrong, I have degodded God. Carson says this, If he, she, or it exists, he had better please and obey me, or I will find another one who will. And the serpent continues his conversation with Eve. No. You can hear him say it, right? You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. So what's he just done? He's offered something that is partly true and partly false. The thing about Adam and Eve, whenever you begin to interact with them in the Bible, they are like us because they're formed like us, but they are different than us in that they have no memories of previous sins because they did not have previous sins. We're not sure about belly buttons, but we do know they did not have previous sins. There are no sins that are there. Verse 5. In fact, God knows this. This is what the devil says to her, the serpent. Coral snake. In fact, God knows that when you eat it or, or your eyes, when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. And you will know good and evil. Now the woman saw the tree was good for food. So it's not like God had put this tree in the garden and said, you know, you've got all these good trees and there's this one tree that's just producing bad, corrupt fruit. The tree God had placed in the garden was not full of bad, corrupt fruit. This tree was good and the food was delightful so it was look, to look at. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband. I love this. He's been there the whole time. Now this story gets told by children's books like Adam is out herding the flock. 
That's not what's happening. He has been standing in her midst for the entirety of the conversation. And he was with her. She ate it and he ate it. God never said it was bad. He just said, don't eat from it. And the minute that we begin to ask the question, why? Disobedience, it's there. It's present in us. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. So right here in the midst of the garden, they did not know what nakedness even was. And they didn't know, had no clue to the idea that it could be baked of the fruit. They realize it. And they begin to decide what's good and what's bad. Because they've already decided what they think is good and what's bad. How often is that you and how often is that me? The direction and instruction of God, which is good for us, we avoid and we, we disregard. We love to tell any type of authority, no. We love to declare that we know better. When I was at a church in Chattanooga, and we made a, this incredibly vain attempt to move the entirety of the church from just the random Sunday school teacher teaching their own lesson to everyone being on the same page. I, you know, because I looked around and I wasn't in charge and as I looked around I noticed that there were some who were teaching this and some who were teaching that and some who were just going through cookbooks and some who were going through uh, weird books about prophecy that were worse than cookbooks and all of these things were happening like blood moons and such and we say to them giving this question can we just all go through the same thing so that we're thinking through the same things together you would have thought we'd asked to take the pulpit away. It was a very odd conversation. Because people don't like to be told what to do. This thing reigns through all of us. How many of us like to be told what to do? The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man, verse 8, and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Side note, I don't know who they're hiding from. They made, he made them. And they know what one another looked like already. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Keep going with me. Verse 9. So the Lord God called out to the man and, to, and said to him, Hey, where are you? I included the hay. And he said, I, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, Well, who told you that you were naked? This is God. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did you do what I told you not to do? Parents, we've been there, right? Did you do the one thing that I asked you not to do? Of all the things for you not to do. Did you do it? And then the man does in verse 12. Uh, the woman. Let's talk about her. The woman that you gave to me. Notice what he's done. He has not said as we look at the ramifications of this sin. He has not said it's the woman's fault. Whose fault is his sin? It's God's. In the eyes of Adam, who is naked and afraid, he looks and says, you know whose fault this is? It's not mine. Because I was standing on the side. I didn't say a word. It's not, it's not even hers. You gave her to me. This started with you. 
The woman you gave me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so the Lord asked the woman, well, what have you done? And she said, well, see the serpent, the serpent that you put in the garden, he deceived me. Again, whose fault is this according to us when we begin to make rules and regulations based on our own opinions? It's yours. It's your fault. You put the snake here. You put the woman here. This is all on you. And that's the way many of us read any type of Bible text that gives us direction. We begin to run to the very beginning and we begin to ask questions about, God, why did you do that? And we never ever ask, God, did I miss what you told me to do? You gave me one direction. You had one job, Adam. Don't eat from the tree. The woman that I gave you, that was for your good and you chose to not interact as she ate from the tree. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, You... Verse 13, rather. So the Lord God asked, Well, what have you done? And she said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you're cursed more than any other livestock and more than any other wild animal. You will move on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Here's the thing about that serpent, though. The enmity between that serpent and God is not something that comes into play right here. That snake already hates God. That snake, or according to what we read in Job, has already made this cosmic treason possible. Eating dust is a sign of defeat. Do you hear what God has just said to Satan? You will never ever win and every day of your life I'm going to remind you that you never ever win. Verse 15, we're going to come back to that, but I'm going to read it. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And he said this to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. That's not cool, ladies. I've been in the room. Been there. And you will bear children with painful effort. Men, we don't understand this. That's why when Hope was in labor with Shepherd, you'll notice our first child, I asked in the middle of this if I could go to the Chick-fil-A in the hospital lobby. It's never been forgotten. (laughs) Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Here we still have this tension. The idea of forceful rule, mistreatment. And he said to the woman, to the man rather, verse 17, we begin to see the, the sins of all of them. The snake, here's what you get. Eve, here's what's going to happen to you. You get one verse for one, one verse for the other. But for Adam, for humanity, for the one who represents all of, of human beings, the ground, here's what's going to happen. Because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree which I commanded you not to eat. The ground is cursed because of you. Now hear me, friends. Work is not a curse. Work is cursed. He was working before this. God had given him direction as to what to do. But he now hates the way that he will care for himself because of the curse. He hates the way that he will provide for himself because of the curse. You will eat from it by means of painful labor. Different labor than the woman gets, but labor nonetheless. All the days of your life, I will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You're going to work and it will always have a cost. Last week we were on vacation. And as they like to say, I may need a vacation from said vacation. 
There was a day where we took the kids to uh, this trout farm. If you've never been to a trout farm, it's not really fishing, it's just catching. And we Googled it and we read about the trout farm. Let's go and catch some fish. Because fishing's not really my thing. But we'll go. Let's go do this. And when you get there, there it's pretty well built out. There's this place where the baby fish are. And that drops fish to the middle pond where the almost fish are. I don't know if that's the technical term, but we'll go with it. And then that drops them to the place where you fish. And those are big enough for you to catch this large, large trout. And when you pull up, you have to pay this minimal fee. It's not much at all. You're there on their farm because that's not the deal. They're not making money because you're fishing. They're making money because you're catching. And while you're there, you begin to look at the allure of the fact that everyone is catching fish. All around you, they're catching fish. People would just fish after fish after fish after fish. And I'm watching this happen. And then I notice there are signs up all around No catch and release. If you catch it, it's yours. That's so cool. It's so cool they would bless me that way. And then I noticed on the stand, there is one sign in the entire place that lets you know the cost for the fish. Every fish that you catch costs based upon the pound. Now... I looked over at that point and my children were catching fish not with a rod but with a net. I'm pretty sure that Brokefoot Alder had one in a chokehold just out of the water. That's hyperbole. Uh, I looked around and noticed that we had bucket after bucket of fish. My father-in-law walks over to me and says, we may need to slow down. We have fish for days, for the rest of our lives. And all of this fish, all of this toil that we thought was a blessing actually comes with a cost. Adam is going to work and it's always going to cost. It's always going to be a rough, rough thing. It's always going to be difficult even when it seems like it's blessing its curse. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. All of your work comes with a cost. And that ultimate cost is this. You are dust and you will return to dust. You're going to go back to where you came from, which is not the way that it was evidently intended to be. The man, he named his wife Eve, verse 20, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord made clothes from skins for the man and his wife and he clothed them. The ramifications of the fall. Labor is hard and difficult. The snake is cursed on top of cursed. The man's work will be hard forever. But there is restoration. We see that in verse 15. We see the story, this whisper, this hint, this yelling of Jesus. When we read in Genesis chapter 3.15, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Why in the world do we see a story about curse after curse after curse? But right here in verse 15, right in the middle of it, we see that there's hope. Because there is hope. And hope is always in the middle of the mess. I don't know what your mess is. I don't know what you're walking through, what your struggle is, but we're not waiting to come around a corner where God will show up. God has actually said, my hope is right in the midst of what you're walking through. You're not working your way around a difficulty. I'm with you in the midst of it. 
One day, I was, that same day I was on the trail, and I came across that coral snake. I, I, I walk, and I probably announced to five to six women, men, and children that I had seen a coral snake, and they said, we know, we can tell by the look on your face. Eventually, I, I come around the corner again, and I, I see a man standing there, this man, and, and I've already instructed him about said coral snake, and he lets me know um, that one day, six years ago, he was on that very course, and he saw a snake too, but he did not see a coral snake. He told me that he was walking on that very same trail, and he noticed, from the words of his mouth, a boa constrictor that someone had evidently released. Like it was a pet, and then you say, oh, this is dumb to have, this is a pet, this is a snake. And they had released it into this trail beside the college. So this man then said to me, so I did something. He said, I caught it. What is happening? I caught the snake. And, and I caught the snake and uh, I skinned it. Who does, I, I was on the phone with a friend at the time and he said, look, you don't need to be afraid of snakes, you need to be afraid of him. <laughs> I caught it and I skinned it. There's this war that's being waged. When we get to the Gospels, we see there's a situation in Matthew chapter 4 that is in many ways similar to the one that we've just walked through. But there are some slight differences. In Matthew chapter 4, we see the temptation of Jesus. You've more than likely heard about said temptation. But there are major differences. Because when we look at Adam, he is where? Adam and Eve are in what? What is their surrounding? They're in a garden. That's so good. So good. Garden city. But Jesus is not in a garden when we meet him in Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus, who is the true and better Adam, when we meet with Jesus, he's not in a garden. He's in a what? Desert. Make sure you have two S's or you are in the middle of an ice cream sundae. He's in the middle of a desert. When you meet with Adam in the garden, he is in community, standing there with his wife. He has right relationship with God. He is talking to God. When you meet with Jesus, he is all alone. When you look at Adam, according to one pastor, every comfort is there. He can eat whatever he wants. He is feasting forever. When we meet with Jesus, there is no comfort that is there. He's fasting for 40 days. We look into this text where Jesus is tempted in the way that Adam was, but differently. And we see his response to it is different. We see how Jesus responds to Satan differently. And we see when passages tell us that there is going to be hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and he will strike his heel. We are seeing that Jesus models for us as followers how we are to interact with sin. Because when we look and we see Adam, we see that he was passive towards sin. Yet Jesus, in his response to Satan throughout Matthew chapter 4, he is not passive, he is aggressive. And Jesus strikes against Satan, who was attempting to strike against him. Our first sin was a refusal to rule over what God had given us. And while Adam ignored sin, Jesus attacks it. Evil does not come after Jesus. Jesus walks resolutely toward Jerusalem to pursue and defeat hell itself. Jesus attacks darkness. Jesus attacks all that darkness ensues, all that darkness brings. And we notice that sin reigned in death. And sin, in this passage that we see in Genesis chapter 3, the story of the fall of humanity, when we get to the book of Romans, we see these numerous pictures from the Scriptures as to how God has restored what sin had removed. 
Sin reigned in death. That's not taking place anymore. Earlier, Jared read from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. In fact, sin was before was the world before the law. But sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. From Adam, from that point forward, sin always reigns over us. Sin is part of us. Sin has tainted us. Sin has broken us. Even those who do not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. So for every one of us who say, I didn't do what Adam did, that's tough. Because you get Adam's problem. He's in that way a type of the coming one. Meaning that the impact of Adam is far-reaching in the way that the impact of Jesus is far-reaching. Here we see an attack on another binary in this passage. That is the one of death versus life. We've noticed that in this text. That death is coming for Adam. Death is coming for Eve. That death will ultimately come for the snake. And we have yet again this binary. And we find it in verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. We don't have a situation that's simply death versus life. We have more than that. Because death is bad, but life is better. This is not good versus evil. This is there is something that is terrible, but what God offers you is so much more. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man's trespass many died, how much more had the grace of God and the gift which comes to the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin because from one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation but from, one, from many trespasses came the gift resulting in justification. God has done more than sin could ever do in the negative. God's positives always outweigh sin's negatives. What we gain in Jesus is much greater than what we have lost because of Adam. Verse 17. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Verse 18. So then, as through one trespass there's condemnation for everyone, so so also through one righteous act there is justification leading to life for everyone. The offering of hope that we are given in Jesus is always greater than the penalty of sin that takes place because of it. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. The law comes along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in the death, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice this, friends. Gift is used in this passage five times. God has given you a gift in Jesus. That gift is what defeats sin and death and hell and everything that will hold you captive. In verse 15, sin reigned. In verse 15, grace overflows. In 17, death reigned. In 17, grace reigns even more. In 20, sin multiplied. In 20, grace multiplies even more. This is why Jesus says to us, I have life, but doesn't stop there. Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and have life more abundantly. What he offers is always better. It's always better. Life in Christ is so much better than the worst that death could ever do. So friends, for all of us who sit in this room and think that God is trying to accept us because of our righteousness, he, does, he never accepts you because of your righteousness. He always accepts you because of the righteousness that has been given to you as a gift by Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you will find healing under the lordship that Jesus has. 
in Christ, His instructions, His directions, His don't do this, don't say that, don't. They are our helps. So we can see Jesus for who He is in this passage, the reigning, ruling, conquering King of the entirety of the Bible. And we can see that we have been pointing, we have been pointed toward Him from the very beginning as the one who would crush what had attempted to crush us. Because Christ is our help and He is our hope. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I invite you to bow your heads. If you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, there is a possibility, more than likely, that you are living in these vain attempts to please God because of your righteousness. And I would encourage you to think through what Jesus says. My righteousness is what makes you righteous. The hope that I get is the hope that matters. I pray we would turn to Him. Hold on to Him. If you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to know that He, he alone can save you. The, the death that Adam received is a death that you will receive. But the grace that Jesus offers is better than that. The hope that He offers is greater than that. So turn to Him as a Savior. Turn to Him as your King and trust what He has done on the cross so that you may be right with God. Because death does not get the last say. Lord, we thank You for this morning. We thank You that we can be in Your Word.